0: Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest, find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marikiri couch with Professor Sophie Scott. Sophie's a British neuroscientist whose research looks at voices, speech and laughter, particularly speech perception, speech production, vocal emotions, and human communication. She also regularly performs stand-up comedy, is a host of the popular Neuromantics podcast, and has been a panel guest on BBC Radio 4's The Infinite Monkey Cage. Sophie was appointed a CBE in 2020 for services to neuroscience. She lives in London, and her TED Talk, Why We Laugh, has had more than four and a half million views. Well, Professor Sophie Scott, welcome to the Marie Curie couch. Hi. How are you?
1: I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's uh, it's cold and rainy, but that's um, that's a nice change. It's been slightly too hot recently, so I'm, I'm coping.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. One of the things we hear from people who listen to the podcast is that they find it helpful when they hear about other people's experience of death and dying and bereavement. And and sometimes people will talk about the fact that hearing other people's stories makes them feel less isolated in their own grief. I wondered if I could start by asking you, Sophie, if you could tell me about a significant bereavement you've experienced in your life?
1: Well, probably the most significant would be my father's death. And it's interesting what you just said about people hearing other people's stories, because I can remember in a really weird way, the day my father died felt very much like the day my son was born, by which I mean, everything felt different. The world is different, but also I felt like very, very connected with other humans. Like you're caught up in these monumental personal events that happen to everyone. They're huge and they're happening all the time. They feel extraordinary, but they couldn't be more normal. It's an odd, odd way to feel like the world is just feeling different. And also you are feeling like a human surrounded by other humans. Um, that's just an aside. So yeah, my father died about 13 years ago now, and I was probably characteristically, so I was a daddy's girl. You know, I was the eldest child. I was Oz and am very like him and we were very close. And he was, he was a salesman. He sold carpets and um, he was funny. He was a funny man. And I remember when I was a kid, it's long before as a scientist, one of the things I study is laughter. And long before I ever got anywhere close to studying that, I used to worry about my father making people laugh and he was working because I thought people would get so carried up by the laughter, they would forget what was going on and then end up buying carpets they didn't want. You know? um, and then years later, years and years and years later, he fell very sick with what turned out to be senior Gravis, which is a very horrible neurological disease. Um, and it started with a really catastrophic onset of him. It suddenly it paralyzes your muscles, your immune system attacks your nerve muscle junctions, and it stops you from being able to move. And of course, one of the things that you do when you're moving is you breathe. And the first onset of it for him was it sort of very critically stopped him from breathing. And he happens to be at the doctor's when this happened and they happened to be able to save him. So he was very, very lucky to be alive at all. But that took a while for them to work out what was going on. And he was in intensive care for a long time, which leads to its own problems. And then it took them a while when they realized it was myasthenia gravis to work out how to deal with it, because it's quite a peculiar and very rare disease. So he went from being in perfectly good health to being in this catastrophic series. Of he's had this had great problems breathing, and then he had a period of being in a medical coma. When he came around from that, he was in an ICU psychosis, which is not unusual. And then he had a massive hemorrhage in his throat because he'd been on a breathing tube, and then they gave him medicine that nearly killed him. So there was a sequence of things, and the third one, the when they gave him medicine that he had reacted to, and was he was dying from that. We were sitting around at the hospital yet again. It was just like another week back to the hospital. And we were just waiting for the doctors to do something. And um, he said, I guess, was thinking about what was happening. And he suddenly said, oh, we've laughed a lot, haven't we? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we have. Didn't really think about it again anymore. And he survived that. They got him off the medicine and he had another good 12 years. And then, you know, old age and coping with this unpleasant disease finally got him. And that was quite a long process. He was dying for quite a long time. And it was kind of something having been through these from nowhere sequence of oh my god he's about to die oh god he's about to die oh god he's about to die, um, made us value I suppose like you'd always do but made, made made us all pay probably more attention to valuing the fact that he was still around for all this extra time you might call it in football but also have no real illusions about what was likely to happen next time this is a, it's a pretty full on disease and it will. As will old age, you know this isn't a, a game that ends with people living forever. So you're sort of ready for it, but then it's still horrendous when it happens. And it's a, as long as somebody's still breathing, you sort of think, well, there's hope. There's something going on. Um, we can get out of this. And of course, the last time as will happen, it it, it didn't. Um, so that was huge and monumental. And even though it couldn't have been more expected, I suppose, but it was very. Um, uh well i'm trying to think of a good way of describing it um it was also still funny in that up until he was very ill he was still laughing at things and was still funny and after he died and he died in france my parents lived in france um funerals happened very quickly in france uh so we all zoomed over to france to be there for the funeral but um the whole thing was managed by, you know, quite a different process. So we went to the crematorium, but he wasn't in a sort of like a hearse as it would be in the UK. It's a the, the same people that run ambulances also run act as undertakers. Oh, okay. Uh, as uh, when my father first fell ill, the, the ambulance driver, the sort of t- taxi driver who took my father to the to the hospital initially, explained that she also did funerals, uh, which my mother didn't feel <laughs> The greatest uh, uh, suggestion of confidence in how her, how she thought this was going to pan out. Anyway, so we set off following my father's uh, coffin, which is in a just a sort of people carrier. And I suppose we just hadn't occurred to us that the driver would still drive like a French driver. So he kept doing like overtakes on really dangerous bits of road, and we're like, we're not following there, and then he'd wait for us, and but then carry on. Oh, I've got you like that He was obviously quite concerned that we didn't fully understand how to overtake vehicles. It was very funny um and then that night we just had a massive party because he would want people to have fun and had been drinking champagne all night and i had, a, had one relative who was very shocked and upset by this who was from another part of the family but everybody else was like no we're all in this is what he'd want to do and it felt good to be able to celebrate him if that makes sense mm, it does
0: just going back to when your dad first became ill Over those 12 years, um, throughout that whole period from his diagnosis up until his death, what kind, if any, what kind of conversations were you having as a family about death and dying? Was it coming into conversation?
1: Um, No, it didn't really. Um, I think because it felt like it was already in the room because of what he'd gone through. And he was frail. You know, so it's a disease that affects your ability to move, and anything that sets off your immune system can throw you into you know kind of real paralysis. So, and the drugs they give you for it, like the steroids they put in on, they they have big effects on your body as well when you're on them for a long time. So it was he was monumentally affected by it. Yeah, death was already there, and he he never actually complained about anything. He was like, well, you know, I'm still here. It's had a few goes, and I'm still. And he was very focused on enjoying things so he really enjoyed travel when he could still travel and he would come to the UK and he would go and do things you know it was he would try and push it as much as he could do and he would my son was born very unexpectedly I had my first child at the age of 39 so no one really saw that on the horizon and he was delighted he was so happy about that and he thoroughly enjoyed his grandson, my son, he and they got on very well. So there was he was very good at finding um positive aspects to life and he really threw himself into that, I'd say, for those last twelve years. He was not someone who was a bystander. You know, he he enjoyed being alive. He enjoyed doing things. He was always kind of interested in, in, in finding activities that he liked doing or people he liked being with and doing those things. And if anything, he just turned the dial up on that. And it wasn't really talked about, but that was, you know, just completely implicitly understood by everybody. So I think it was What's the best way of phrasing this? The disease was limiting his life, but within that, he was doing everything he possibly could do to enjoy the fact that he was still around and had people he could enjoy doing things with. He was a man of faith, uh, which I'm not in particular, but he I think he also got quite a lot of support from that. And he also, and this was this was from before he was unwell. He always considered himself to be lucky. He felt he was a lucky person. Not in that he was lucky and other people were unlucky, but that. You know, good fortune came his way. And he probably was as in psychological terms a proper optimist. He would have, really would see that the glass was half glass was half full. But he never complained about how unwell he was or how unfair any of it was or how miserable the drugs were. He just, you know, sort of navigated a route that let him find the positive aspects.
0: And he was living. Yes. And it's that um, you know, often we will hear people are surprised who come into contact with our work because the thoughts about that is oh well it's all focused on death and dying and mm-hmm. you know even coming into the hospice it's really interesting yeah. when people come into a hospice and um, for the first time and they're like oh it's so different than what we yeah. thought it was going to be and you talk about improving our quality of life and living yeah. you're not having conversations all the time about dying although we're very happy to have them conversations if people want to have them especially in often in a very practical way as well about planning for you know sorting finances out writing a will planning a funeral some of those more practical things um i guess from what you were saying when you were talking about um your dad's funeral in the crem that wonderful drive to the crematorium was that maybe he'd not planned that out but it was something that you all Kind of created for him afterwards. In in, in he would have found in, in it funny. He Thought he would have enjoyed. Yeah, but so so he didn't. He didn't have like a plan. He hadn't written down what he wanted for his funeral.
1: He planned a lot for what would happen to my mum. There was okay. there was quite a big age difference between them. So he was in his eighties, and my mum was in her late sixties, and so he'd planned a lot financially, and he'd written letters for her um, because wasn't any confusion about how how things were going um so he'd and he'd he'd done a lot of that well in advance i think possibly even quite a lot in advance of the original illness so he'd planned for her to be financially secure and just because the age difference he was assuming that that he would be dead first but he hadn't planned anything beyond that i can remember sitting down the crematorium service was run by a couple of friends of his and my parents, um, who'd, who'd taken holy orders and were able to, to conduct the service. Um, and that, I think, I suspect that probably was planned. I don't think that wasn't random. That was, um, but i think it would have been planned between my parents and their friends. And then there was another service. They, as I say, they they lived in France and they were religious. There was a church near where they lived in France that held English services. So we had the crematorium service and then a service at this church, which all their friends came to. And I assume that that must have been part of their plans as well. That's not the sort of thing that you could just summon up from nowhere. And then we held a service back in the UK because that was where you know, he'd lived most of his life. And he'd been a chorister at what was then the Queen's Chapel of the Savoy, but I guess is now the King's Chapel of the Savoy. And I just called them up and said, he used to be a chorister. Can we have a memorial service with you? And they were absolutely. So he would have liked that. That wasn't planned at all. That was enjoyable. It was very moving, but it was enjoyable because the most peculiar people turned up. And all these Masons turned up. We never didn't really know it had anything to do with the Masons, but it turned out he joined the Masons to please his father. And um they wrote the loveliest letters afterwards. They <laughs> were very nice. But no, not not much planning as a family, I think.
0: Yeah. There was surprises after as well, just That's... kind of discovering other bits about his
1: life. I discovered after he died that he could play the piano. What? If you told me he could fly a plane, I couldn't have been more surprised. <laughs> we had a piano for all my childhood, and he never (laughs) went near it, let alone gave any indication he could play it. And from my perspective, if you have a piano and you can play the piano, you play the piano all the time. Why wouldn't you? You know, that's a party right there. And his parents were both musicians. His father was a singer and his mother was a pianist. And my father liked to play games he could win. And he could sing, but not as well as his dad. So he didn't sing much. (laughs) He could play the piano, but not as well as his mum. So he wasn't going to engage with that. It was fascinating. I was stunned.
0: That's great. Because, I mean, yeah, I, I I don't play the piano, but I like to think that if I did, I'd just be playing it all the time. All the time, one yes. The
1: <laughs> right there.
0: So you're happy to share your dad's name?
1: Yeah, his name was Colin, Colin Mountford Scott. And his grandfather, John Scott, was Glaswegian. We have Glaswegian Scots originally. And um, he'd worked in the carpet industry in a factory and had walked from Glasgow down to the Midlands for work where he'd found work and then he'd had something like 18 children so there are huge it's only relevant because I have a vast number of scott cousins um they didn't all live to i think 13 of them lived to adulthood but there was just huge numbers of scots i think my father had something like 36 cousins first cousins and i have got like vast numbers of second cousins it's, it's great we're all many of us still in touch it's lovely christmas can be challenging for many of us but for families experiencing dying, death or bereavement, it can often feel impossible. Help Marie Curie be there when it counts by funding care, comfort and joy for even more people during these toughest of times. Search Marie Curie Christmas. If you'll be missing someone special this Christmas and need to talk, we're here. Marie Curie's support line is open over the festive period. Call 0800 090 2309 or visit mariecurieorguk forward slash support.
0: I'm going to just move on to talk about bereavement could you talk a bit Sophie if you don't mind about your experience of bereavement and maybe maybe some of the things that helped you
1: I was surprised at how sort of physical and cognitive it is I was expecting bereavement to be devastatingly sad and of course it is endlessly sad and you're sort of just lost in this new different world but I I had difficulty remembering things or sort of reading books, and I remember my mother saying she couldn't read a book like like a novel for years. She just couldn't engage with stuff in the same way, and I I can completely understand that. It was obviously worse for her in that way, but also it felt almost like you were kind of carrying an injury, like you'd broken your arm, like you were just vulnerable, like things could affect you. You weren't, you didn't feel safe, mm. um, and you're not safe, are you? People can go, the world can just take them, and that's a terrifying feeling, you know. So you are, you do feel just like you like you're carrying an injury, like you are not whole. And I kept thinking, well, this is you sort of hit the bottom of it, and then there'd be another new bottom. I remember being absolutely distraught after two weeks after he died. That suddenly we were leaving behind times, moving on, things are moving on, and he's not coming with you, and that was sort of shocking to, to find that set of thoughts. The stuff I found that helps, and still helps actually, is to do things or engage with things that he enjoyed. So that might be thinking, oh, he'd have found this funny. Um, and like the the Undertaker driving really dangerously with his coffin. Um, but also, I mean, like really practical things like he enjoyed, he hugely enjoyed Tony Hancock's work. And I would listened to some of the radio programmes with him over the years, but I started really listening to them like on my own and in fact sharing them with my son who turned out to absolutely love them and that meant that we just listened to them all the time because my son got obsessed with them and that was a real source of comfort to listen to something that he had loved for his whole life and it meant a lot to him and to find joy in it ourselves like we were genuinely and unironically enjoying it was really really delightful and that was um it was a source of comfort it was a source of great comfort or even completely new things that he wouldn't have known anything about, um, but that he would have found funny or enjoyed. Or um, he he sold carpets and um, I used to help him out a lot in the showroom when he worked in London. And so I knew a lot about their range of carpets. And I sort of started doing things on social media where I would make jokes about carpets or put up examples of carpets I'd seen, impressive or unimpressive. And actually it was largely because I would have enjoyed discussing it with him. Um, because I can remember the first time I went to the Google offices when they were briefly near Covent Garden and they had a shag pile carpet in an office environment. I've never seen such a thing. <laughs> this is, oh, I, my father, but he, he would not believe his eyes. He'd probably call the police, you know. Um, and I think I took a photograph of it and put it on Twitter. But that's... Uh, lying on the floor.
0: Well, just styleful. like
1: looking in horror. <laughs> How is this going to work? Let's just look at the doorway. This This is not going to wear well. Or I was watching a television programme with my son the other week, and there was it was from the 1980s, and there was a whole sequence where they were in a room which had some of my father's carpet in it, the carpet that was made in the factory he worked in. I was like, oh, it's rusticana you know. So that's, you know, kind of doing some uh, knowingly funny carpet spotting sort of connects me to him in that it would be something I would have discussed with him he would have rung somebody up if he'd spotted one of his carpets on the television in fact I can remember him doing that Des O'Connor once had one of their rugs on his show and everyone was just hitting the roof this is unbelievable the phone's ringing off the hook but it it makes me laugh as well it makes me feel a bit connected to him and it also you know I'm trying to make it into something that is more generally funny you know it's just something you know it's a, a bit of humor and that feels like a way, it's like a conversation. It's like if it would have made him laugh and I can make me laugh, can I make anybody else laugh with it? I didn't get comfort from that.
0: No, no, in grief research the bereavement research, they talk about the importance of those continuing bonds. Mm. And I love that when you were, um, which i would not thought lots about, but that when you, so it's not necessarily, it might not necessarily be things that the person who's died liked and enjoyed themselves at the time but actually it's discovering new things that you know they would have liked and enjoyed as well. I really like that. I was also struck by your image of the broken arm because as you were talking, the word that was coming up for me was wounded. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think loads of people listening who are grieving, that'll make total sense to them because it made total sense to me.
1: I can remember another friend, her dad died very suddenly, but we're about the same age. Our dads are at the same age. And it wasn't long after my father died. And we were talking about it. And she said, I, I can't believe everyone's just walking around. Like, there must be so many people in this state, to greater and lesser degrees, at different points in their journey. But it's just because it's happening to everybody all the time. How does anything get done? How, how is anybody getting through their day? And it's true. It's sort of dizzying how widespread how appalling but how totally normal and continuously happening it is and somehow people are getting through things it's it's an amazing thing
0: and we can't see it
1: and we can't see unless it unless yeah. someone
0: tells us yes we can uh, see the broken arm yeah yeah so I touched on this earlier when I was talking about, um, you know, through our work, one of the things we try and do is encourage conversations about death and dying, particularly sometimes practical things like writing a will, or um, you know, and 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 oh, what I was going to say earlier actually, which I'll just touch on quickly now because I think it'll be good for people, um, might be good for listeners, is the letter writing that your dad did, and I think that can be therapeutic for the letter writer as well at the time, um not only for those who are going to receive those letters either before or after somebody's died. I think it's a it's a good one to put out there, you know, for somebody for people to consider. Um but yeah, so thinking about planning ahead, I wanted to ask, do you ever think about your own death?
1: My partner and I sort of talk about the inverse quite a lot. So we've both had, you know, issues with health and we started using this kind of phrase, oh, these are the good days, to justify doing things whenever we possibly can. So we've got a couple of days free. There are cheap tickets on the Eurostar. Right, we're all going off to Brussels for the weekend because we're all still here. You know, our, our son's still living with us. He's still at school. We're both still running around. We can afford it. Right, let's do it. You know, let's not. I'm not saying no day is wasted that you've enjoyed, but there's some quite good evidence from psychology that you are. if you've got a bit of money, you are better off spending it doing things than buying things. Buying things is nice, but actually doing things is the stuff you remember, and it's the stuff that improves your mood. So that's what we do, and we do it, you know, because we're all still here. These are the good days. And we have talked about wills, and we're doing a joint will at the moment. We also, you know, we've we talked a bit about end of life care. We've talked about how we will live as we get older, and are inshallah, God willing, if we're still, you know, able to live independently, how we'll think about doing that, and also yeah that kind of practical side we haven't talked much about actual death although I have been quite specific that at my funeral I really do want and I want the number one song in heaven played by Sparks that's it both my, my son and my partner know this so we talked about the, the kind of practical sides of wills and life not so much what do you want the end of your life to be like but I suppose one of the things that life has because, you know, sadly, my father's death hasn't been the only significant one. But there's lots of different ways life can end. And sometimes it can be when you can see the coming on the horizon, like with my dad. And other times it just happens when you're asleep. So you don't always have as much say over how it might end. But then, you know, there's still no point not planning for the best case scenario, which is that you do have some say about how things are going. So,
0: hmm. um, Is legacy something that's important to you? So like how you'd like to be remembered?
1: yes but I think that's probably something that you I don't know just as you get older you think about well what does it mean to have a good life what is what matters and that, to go back to my father's funeral and these these chaps and the Masons turned up and one of them you know they wrote very nice thank you letters and one of them had grown up in the the Midlands from Kidderminster where my family was all from and had come back from the second World War like a lot of men he was still a young man and he just you know, he didn't have any plans. He didn't want to go back to Kidderminster. So he took himself off to London where he found my grandfather who worked at St. Paul's. He was he was a chorister. And apparently my grandfather said, right, well, you need to see my son, Colin. They didn't know each other. They just came from the same part of the world. So my father didn't know this chap at all, helped him get somewhere to live, helped him get a job. And in his letter, he said, my life started that day. And that's had a big effect on me because I thought maybe it's not so much that you're leaving a legacy where people will remember you. But if you can be a like the net sum total is been positive on other people's lives, that's probably the thing that would be a most meaningful way. Not necessarily that even people would necessarily sit around and write nice letters after you've died. But in the moment, you've added to how well people's lives are going. Can you be a net good in people's lives? I think is what I'm saying. And that feels to me like I personally find a lot of meaning in life from being able to find ways that you can do that. One of the things I like being more senior at work now at the university is that you can do things that practically help people and you can make things better. You can't always make things better, but you can certainly try and you can certainly try out things to put in place that might um, and then see how it's going. That feels satisfying, less to do with legacy, more to do with just, as I say, to make me feel personally like like my life has meaning, that that would be a something that's worth engaging with. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. And it's like a steer, actually, yeah. for you as well, isn't it, through life? So it's like, well, it's not just a value, but you, you know, if you, you live by it, and it's good to have them things, actually, as well, just to live by, isn't it? You know, I think it's good yeah. to have steers and to have some impact. I like that as well when you were just saying about um, having a job that brings more responsibility, but also it means that you're potentially then in a different position where you can steer others as well yeah. um, with that in mind um, as well of ultimately doing good.
1: And what, what that good is is going to vary from person to person and context to context. It's not like there's some sort of set of perfect behaviours we should all be aspiring to, but in the moment, if you have the chance, then it does... it it feels better to be able to know that you've left things better than they were. Mm -hmm.
0: But Marie Curie, this Christmas, we're talking about how we can try to spread care, comfort and joy. What does joy mean to you? And can you relate this to an end of life experience? Maybe
1: joy, I think probably at its heart for me means getting to enjoy the people I'm really close to. Uh, So one of the things I study is laughter and I laugh most And hardest when I'm with the people I'm really close to most of all if I'm with my son and my partner that's when I will laugh to myself into exhaustion so for me it's um, I can't really separate the joy from the people I'm experiencing the joy with and that's part of why I'm enjoying it.
0: Thank you and what place do you think laughter can have during stressful or difficult
1: times? Laughter is a really critically important human expression of, of social joy it's a behavior we do when we're with other people and we can do it because we're bonding with those people or increasing the bonds we already have. And we'll also do it for lots of other reasons. And a really important thing that we will do with laughter is try to de-escalate stressful situations. So it's a very common way for people to, particularly when they're with people that they have a closer emotional bond to like a partner or a family member or a close friend, those can be the people with whom, in fact, I think often what we mean by friendship is people with whom we can find ways to use laughter to make ourselves feel better in difficult situations. So it's laughter sometimes feels like it's a trivial or it's a somehow demeaning behaviour to engage in around stress, but actually it can be a really effective way of making yourself and other people feel better, laughing together in those contexts.
0: Hmm. And what has it meant to you today, Sophie, to come on the Marie Curie couch and have this conversation?
1: i listened to a lot of your other conversations with people and they're so different and they've all got such interesting things to say. I thought, I don't know if I have anything I can add to any of this, you know, how many people's fathers have died. It is many, many people. There's nothing unusual there. But um, I was hoping I could do my father justice. I think he would be interested. He'd probably be very unsatisfied in how I've talked about him. (laughs) Sophie, you've forgotten this. Um, But but I think that mattered to me. And um, if any of this is useful, and I did find it useful listening to other people talking. It there's, there's as you say, they're not things we normally bring out into anything other than very intimate conversations. So there's if there really is value in that and I found it already, you know, valuable. You've made me think about things I hadn't thought about in what I was talking about. Um uh, if that's valuable to other people then some even better.
0: Sophie Scott, thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you for sharing Summer Colin Scott's story. And thank you for being open and honest and lovely to meet you. Thank you. Lovely to meet you.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie is here to help, from planning ahead to coping with bereavement. You can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Content. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.